Our following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. John 5, 1-15 After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an aromatic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. You can be seated. Friends, this morning we have uh, a preacher who's going to join us, but I wanted to introduce him to you before we did. His name's Ted Strawbridge. He talked through communion last week. Ted Strawbridge is the director of church planting training for Mission in North America. That's his full-time job. His part-time job is being an assistant pastor for us here at Restoration Southside. So I do want you to get to know Ted. He's a very good encourager. He's somebody that you can come to uh, when you're discouraged, and he's on our staff, so I encourage you to make use of him. Ted, earthly speaking, is the reason that I planted this church. We were sitting at lunch together, and he said, I think you should plant this church. And I said, no, thank you. And he said, well, it's fine if you say no thank you, but I think you should wrestle with it with the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, I planted a church, so you can blame Ted. But anyway, I just wanted you to know who he was. He's an assistant pastor at our church, and he's a blessing to me personally. And he trains church planters all over the country. So, Ted, would you please come and share God's word with us? Good morning. Thank you very much. I want to invite you to protect yourself. Don't let me get to you. I, if you get, if I get to you, I will change your life forever, and you will never be the same. And it will be really, really hard. Go ahead, give me my first slide. So I think you understand how ridiculously stupid I am. This is me after. Oh, back up. This is me after I backed my Toyota off the end of my driveway in a ravine up at the lake house. Now, what's really, really stupid that I had to wrestle with was whether or not I was going to tell my wife that I did that from the passenger side. <clears throat> Because you see, I, I backed the boat down in where it needed to go. I left the nephew over where we were launching the boat, but the battery wouldn't start. So I had to get back really quickly, and the kid was waiting on me. But by the time I got done, I had to walk across the gravel to get out of the car. 
and I got plantar fasciitis and I haven't touched the ground in like 10 years. And it really, really hurt. And so when I got over to the other side, my shoes were at the boat, you know, because we had to launch the boat. When I got over to the other side, I thought to myself, if I just move this car like a foot, I won't have to go through that pain. So I climbed in the passenger side and I reached over and I started the car. You know, they have all that safety stuff. So I had to reach with my hand down to put my hand on the brake so I could shift it into reverse, I mean drive. But when I started to go forward, it started to roll backwards. And so what you do is, of course, you accelerate. Only I was really in reverse. And so with my hand, I launched myself over a cliff. Fortunately, my car was so smart, it grabbed the boat trailer on the way by. And actually, the boat trailer is pinched up against a five-inch tree, and my car is hanging over about a hundred-yard cliff. And when I stopped, you know how, uh, uh, what do you call the thing, a roller coaster does? And then, and then, and then, and then, well, that was me. It's like, I could get this in a whoosh, I'm over the hill. My first thought is, ooh, Mary Lou's not going to be mad that I crushed her car. She's not going to be mad that I did this. Mm, this passenger seat thing, that's not going to go really well. I, I tell you that to invite you to protect yourself. Because if you hear this word today, I honestly believe your life will never be the same. So uh, we, uh, I knew I was going to be a great dad because I had a, a phenomenal childhood. And so when I started raising my kids, it was awesome. Uh, being with kids is like game day. All, it's just on. That's all we did was play, and it was so much fun. But now I've got a high school kid and a four-year-old, and I, I didn't understand that complexity. But skiing helped us. We stumbled into skiing, and a four-year-old in about a couple lessons can ski with a high school kid. It's phenomenal. So we went skiing. We took a, another family with us. This kid, Joseph, was about five years old, and uh, we were teaching everybody how to ski. And all of a sudden, I hear Joseph's mother scream, <laughs> Joseph had fallen. But as a five-year-old, when he fell, his butt hit the back of the ski, and he was skiing on his fanny, right, on the slope, just with his eyes, like, wide open. And he went back and whoosh. Now, I'm no uh, Lindsay Lohan or whatever her name is, that skier girl, right? But, but you know, M1-V1 equals M2-V2. I can at least go fast, right? <clears throat> so I take off. I'm trying to catch him. I'm trying to catch him. I'm trying to catch him. Now, my brain is working out the math because he's coming closer and closer to the end of the slope, and there's one of those orange nettings, and then about a 50-foot drop, and then a parking lot. Either I catch him, or he dies. That's in my brain. We're getting closer and closer to the fence. Now I'm thinking, oh crap, I'm going to die, because I can't let that kid go over without me going over, right? M1V1 equals M2V2. There's no way I could stop him. The only way I could stop him was to use my mass, right? And just before we got to the fence... I threw all my body into his body, and his knee bloodied my nose. And he looked at me like, why did you do that? And he never knew that I saved his life. Right? Next slide. So then he grew up, and he's about 6'8", and he's got that beard, and he's got a master's degree from Georgia in forestry, and he manages 1,200 acres where the deer are like horses on the Savannah River. And that's his little boy, Joby. And... Uh, Joby had a heart problem, and he threw a clot, and it landed somewhere at the base of his brain, and Joby's paralyzed, and I can't fix him. 
I'm flying to San Francisco this afternoon. If that plane went down and me and everybody on that plane died, I would trade it in a heartbeat uh, for Joby not to be where he is. What I mean to say is, in this story, we find Jesus dealing with brokenness. And, well, let's say this. I told Jerry that you could plan a church on like 30 hours a week. Even if you got little twins, it'll be fine. There's nothing easier than planting a church. And he bought it. I will lie to get my job done. But now that we've got him in here, right, let's come off the top ring ropes and wear him out. Right? Let's land on You guys have a saying. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. What I would like to do is invite you to flood this room with people who are not okay. You have Cy Huffman. You have Eric Ellis on your temporary session. Literally, they're the world's best ruling elders across the entire PCF. You have authority ordained by God to oversee and disciple these people. You know what that means? Every broken person out there, you can go and get them and bring them here. This room could be filled with people who are not okay. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, How can I say this better, faster, quicker? In the PCA, we have this current. We elevate some things. The Word, the sacrament, the prayer, those aren't bad things at all. We elevate the ordination of officers. Those are wonderful things. But it creates a culture in our churches. You know, every strength has a backside weakness. And one of the backside weaknesses of the PCA is we get to communicate to people that it really is the ordained officers who can do the good work of the church. They're the ones who do the work of the kingdom. What if we planted a different kind of church? One reason that Jared has other people much less than him come and preach is because he's sold on the idea that no one man ought to be the hero of the church. There ought to be a preaching team. We ought to say in every possible way that we can that Holy Spirit falls on ordinary believers. You understand what I mean? You are the church. Go get every broken person you can find, every person who's not okay, and bring them here. I owe Joey. Right? I pray for him by the authority of Christ that Christ would heal that little baby. I want that baby healed more than life itself. And when Megan Pulse goes to her elementary school, she deals with all kinds of people who are broken. All kinds of children that are just like this paralytic. Right? I'm kind of going wedding crasher, right? Like you see, I'm not using notes. Um, Open your heart. The first thing you see in this story is Jesus goes to this man. He's been paralyzed. We don't know what that word means exactly. I mean, like it tells us that he is unable to walk, but it doesn't tell us whether he's 38 years old and he was born that way, or he's 50 years old and something happened in his life and he became that way. All we know is he's paralyzed and he's been that way for a long time long time. 
Now again, in your Bibles, verse 4 and 5, it'll probably be highlighted that uh, the Bible doesn't intend to teach that it was true that when the waters stirred, the first person in the waters got healed. That's probably an added, uh, an addition to the earliest manuscripts. Um, but what it means is the people had some superstitious idea. Why would we call it superstitious? Well, from Genesis to Revelation, God's healing doesn't ever seem to act like your uh, ability to get there first earns you the right to be healed. Think of any story in the Bible where people get healed, and it never is incumbent upon them to be the fastest one into the water. First one in the water wins. That's just not who God is like. But for 38 years, this paralytic has been at this pool, believing that if he could get in the water first, he would be healed. Jesus comes to this man and he asks him a very simple question. Do you want to be healed? But you understand, people begin to believe things out of their own experience and they believe them so deeply that they can't fundamentally unbelieve them. You understand? A girl with a big nose looks in the mirror and from the time of her birth, she frames her whole sense of who she is around the size of her nose. Or a man has a certain athletic inability and his whole life he begins to... Or a person has an addiction and they begin to come to the place where they can only think of themselves in terms of their addiction. They can't ever believe that they can actually be better or made whole. You see, it's really a legitimate question. Do you want to be better? You understand we had brought a little girl into our family. My, my wife actually did. I mentioned her a little bit last week. She was 10 years old when she came into our house. She could not say thank you. In, in normal life, you don't understand how these things work because you've probably had a normal life. Right? Like if I'm in the, you know, a car and I'm driving up 24 and I'm going through the ridge cut, you don't notice that you're going uphill. But all those semis, they're moving over in the right-hand lane because they can barely get up there. It's a whole different experience for them. Jennifer was abused by her brothers in the middle of the night. Over and over and over again. And so for her, the vulnerability of even saying thank you puts her in an uncomfortable position because she's acknowledging that she received something from you that she didn't deserve. You understand what I'm saying? There are things that happened in her life that frame the way she thinks about herself and she can't unthink them. I'm her father, and I swear to you on oath, that the day that she dies with her last breath in this world, she'll be wrestling with the reality of what happened in her life. It frames the way she thinks about herself. And I have to tell her over and over and over and over and over again, that's not you. You're made in God's image. But something inside of her has a hard time believing that that could even be true. You understand, the paralytic 
answers wrongly. Do you want to be well? Let's see, uh, no, there's nobody that will put me in the pool. And when the water's stirred up, I, I can't get in. Somebody always jumps in ahead of me. No, 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 no. That's not what you say to the king of the universe. Jesus doesn't need the, water, the pool to make the man well. He just needs the man to say, I need to be made well. Do you understand? The right response is like the blind guy that Jesus will heal in John chapter 9. You're the king. Do with me what you will. When Jesus comes to you, He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't accept your terms. You understand? You have a concept of yourself that Jesus doesn't buy into. The man gets it wrong. And so Jesus said to him, since you didn't get it right, I'm going to leave you and I hope bad things happen to you until you get it straight. No, that's what we do in the PCA. Sorry. Everybody nod your head. Ted loves the PCA, right? Yes. Ted's going to die in the PCA, right? Unless they throw me out. Right? I love the PCA. But when we do what we do, we convey to people that real spirituality starts when you get up to here. Does that make sense? A friend of mine that worships here worshiped at a Baptist church. And he described when you walked into that Baptist church in Red Bank, there's a culture in that church. Everybody's doing something. Somebody's taking out the trash. Somebody's wiping the board. But every believer is a member and a vital contributor to that church. There's no hierarchy of ordination. There's no big guys, little guys. Everybody's working all the time. And then they went from there over to whatever it is, uh, Calvary Chapel. And they have professionals that do everything. And everything's done at a professional level. And so you walk in and you have this spirit of wonderful entertainment by the other people who do all the work. I'm not saying these things are good or bad. I'm just trying to offer you that there's a culture to every church. And I'm begging you, for Christ's sake, don't be like the rest of the PCA in this city and convey to people that real spirituality begins when you get up to some level. The man gets it wrong. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. gives to the man what he desires and the man gives the wrong answer. You understand what I'm offering? We tend to offer help to people when it looks like they're going to make the right choices and deserve our help. And Jesus just gives it. Right? I shouldn't probably pick on people so we'll call her Hagen Maltz, right? When Hagen Maltz goes to teach in Finstone, right? She's pouring her life out to these children in these broken little families. And lots and lots and lots of those children aren't going to be transformed by what she does. They're still going to be broken. The part that I wanted to warn you about is simply the idea that God in Christ picks out this man and he goes to him. The man doesn't come to Jesus. 
And when the man doesn't answer Jesus appropriately, in loving kindness, Jesus heals him. Restoration Southside would be a different place if all the broken people you know knew that this was a place where they could come. If you went out even just this week and said, I go to church, got this pastor, and Jesus uses him to heal people. And I know you think you're broken, and I know you think you've been broken a long, long time. I know it's been 38 years for you, but if you would just come with me, and I could introduce you to Jared, he loves people so much, he says all the time, it's okay not to be okay. If I could just get you to Jared, he's got some people that will love you and care for you regardless of how you respond. Gosh, if we did that, y'all. This place would be rocky. We'd have to double Stratton Hall just to get the broken people in here. It hurts. It's hard. You understand that, right? Right? Because of my adopted daughter's brokenness, we had to have lots and lots of hard conversations. Dad, I want to date this guy. Yeah, he kind of sells drugs on the side a lot, and I know you flew him out of the little Jesus school. But he's amazing. Daddy's so, translation, hot. Right? And so we had to have a conversation about that brokenness. Jen, before you start, I know you're working really hard to lobby me like a good lawyer. Let me tell you what you're doing. You're kind of asking me, can I go play out in the middle of Interstate 24? And it doesn't matter how you dress that up. No good dad can say, yes, you can go play in the middle of the interstate. And so there's no way you can make this argument to date this boy that's pushing drugs and make it reasonable for me to say, yes, I think that's appropriate. It just can't happen. But you're a responsible person, a responsible age, and I'm not going to try to track you down. So behind my back, you can go and date him, and I will never... Know that if you want to deceive me. But here's what I can promise you. If dating that boy is like playing in the middle of the interstate, and you choose to sneak out in the interstate and play, and you choose to date this boy, when that semi-truck finally comes barreling down the highway, and you're about to get run over by it, the last thing you're going to hear in this world is me diving in front of you to throw you out of the way, because that's what a dad does. We had honest, good, adoptive conversations. Jen, I understand sometimes the rules of our household might be hard enough that you decide that you've got to go somewhere else. I want you to know as your dad, it's my responsibility to help you become responsible to take care of yourself. If you run away from our house and you get to Tampa, that would be like embarrassing to me. Any child without a dad could get to Tampa. So let's agree, when you run away, Dad, I'm not going to run away. Well, okay, I know you're not going to run away, but when you run away, at least go to Nashville. If you make it to Nashville, then I would feel like I did a good job raising you. A responsible runaway daughter ought to at least get to Nashville. Right? You hear what I'm really telling you? Jennifer, if it gets so bad here that you have to run away, I'm going to come find you. And I don't care how far you go. I will come and get you. So I'm already in this uh, people naming thing, which my wife really doesn't like, but she's my favorite. 
So Duke is here. He's over here. I changed his name. It's really Luke. Raise your hand, Luke. Thank you, Luke. And over on this side, there's, uh, we'll call him Laramie. Laramie plays, uh, we'll call the organ, so you don't know that it's Jeremy playing the keyboard. <clears throat> when I'm in town, I meet with them on Wednesdays because I need to talk about how I'm going to come to the place where I can actually trust Jesus enough to let go of my preconceptions of what would make me better. You understand? We're not talking about a one and done thing, like you make this decision and then it never haunts you ever after. As a believer, I still have preconceptions about what I need for God to make my life whole. And some of those preconceptions are really wrongly conceived. My sense of the value of my stuff, my sense of the value of my life or my home, all those things, I need a recheck. And every week when I'm in town and we go to breakfast, we talk about how I'm perpetually tending to think about the world wrongly and the use of my stuff wrongly. How much am I willing to give away? How much am I willing to sacrifice? How much am I willing to... Now here's the thing. Jesus is so incredibly honest. This man gets healed. And Jesus tells him to pick up his pallet and walk. And he does it on the Sabbath. And that turns out to be against the rules. And so the guys that run the temple, they see it, and they say, hey, you're not supposed to carry that. He says, hey, that dude told me over. And he's gone. Jesus has disappeared into the crowd. Later, Jesus comes and finds him and says to him, be careful. The man runs to the rulers of the temple and says, there he is, it's that guy, Jesus. He's the one who did it. And the paralytic simply says, I mean, Jesus simply says to the paralytic, go and sin no more or something worse could happen to you. Jesus loves this man so much that he heals him of his physical ailment. But as the man doesn't respond, Jesus continues to treat him with responsibility, and he puts the onus of the man's decision on the man, and he says to him, by the way, if you keep on sinning, something worse than 38 years of paralysis may happen to you. You remember Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven maimed than to be cast into the fires of hell. Jesus loves and serves and heals this man, and he invites him to consider, if you don't give up your wrong preconceptions, something worse may happen to you. So we titled this conversation, What to Do with Broken Friends. Love them to the best that you can. 
feel good. But don't shy away from the truth if you don't deal honestly with who Jesus is in this life. Something worse may happen to you. Let's pray together. Father, for these kind and wonderful folks who follow and support Jared, who have begun something new, we ask, O Lord, that you would come and heal us, that we would experience the presence of your Holy Spirit. For these folks that I picked on, even in public, for friends who walk with me and allow me to have a conversation about where I am and my continual sense of hmm, the pre-assumptions of my life. Father, we pray that in this church, lost and hurting people would feel welcome and invited. That the idea that it's okay not to be okay would really begin when we tell other people all the time there's actually no one who really is okay. We only depend on the healing of Jesus. So, Father, even as we come to the close of this conversation, I would pray again for Joby that you would choose to be the king of the universe, that you would choose in your loving kindness to hear the prayers of your people, that you would come and heal this little boy. We ask these things, O oh Lord, because you've promised that you are the God of all comfort, that you will come and be close to us. Lord, there are people in this room who know how to walk with broken people and make them feel welcome and invite them to everything that they need. Father, let those people be our leaders who show us the way and open the doors of the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.